0: If any of those are not capable, I got to get you trained up and help you build that skill to a level of acceptability. At that point, it's diminishing returns to try and build a spike that isn't there. And I'd much rather find that person who has the missing spike that I don't have. I may be acceptable in that space, but I'm never going to build that competency and have it become
1: a spike. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.
2: Hey leaders, welcome back, this is Ledge. I'm really excited to welcome Mike Vickiolo to the show today. Mike, as i warned you off camera, I always ask my guests to do their own little intro, it's not because I'm lazy, it's because I just got tired of memorizing by it. Maybe that is a little bit lazy. But Mike and I just learned that we are both New Jersey natives, we grew up just a few miles apart, so we will try to keep under control the New Jersey accent. Mike, love to have your intro for the audience who doesn't know you yet.
0: Yeah, great, so thanks for having me on. I'm Mike Figliolo, I'm the Managing Director at Thought Leaders, we're a leadership development and training firm. By way of background, I went to West Point, which is not on the list of America's top party schools. After that, I spent about five years in the Army as an armor officer. The only fighting I did was in a bar, and it was very justified at the time. Then I had some time as a consultant, I was at McKinsey & Company for a few years, serving clients in all different industries on all different functions. Had a couple of corporate roles. I was at Capital One Financial, running a big part of the operations there, and then at Scott's miracle Grow as VP of Corporate Strategy. And I've run thought leaders for the last 18 years, been doing it full-time for, what, 14 and a half now, and work mostly with large corporates on training their professional staff on things like leadership, strategy, decision-making,
2: communication. This was interesting because I found like your course on LinkedIn learning and I took one of your consulting courses and I just thought great insights, great delivery. And I just reached out to, to talk about this stuff. These topics never age out. I think they talk about leadership being the most written about and least understood topic in all of management. When you're out there now and have built this thought leadership What's the story like just around that work? I think it's easy for people all go. I want to be a leadership consultant, and as a recovering corporate drone myself, uh, I did a little work in this space, and yeah, I just love to hear about the work a little bit.
0: Yeah, so most of our work is in classroom instructor-led training. Obviously, we got a really big curveball when the pandemic hit, and uh, fortunately, I was on LinkedIn Learning at that point. I've got. 30 courses on that platform on leadership, communication, strategy, consulting skills. And uh, we actually stood up our own e-learning platform in, I think it was seven weeks, going from nothing to fully built out platform and made the shift to virtual. I think one of the biggest things that we've learned over the years is, this applies to the folks who we teach as well as for us personally in running the firm, is make a decision and move, make a decision. I was coaching a CEO right before this call and he and I have been working together for a while. And it's just astonishing how paralyzed organizations get. And they won't make the call. And it's really about fear of being wrong, fear of uncertainty that's out there. So the notion is let's slow down and let's gather more data and let's see how the world plays out. And then we'll make a decision when we know more. And in theory, when you're doing that, you are reducing risk because more information leads to less risk. However, every day the world is introducing new sources of uncertainty and new sources of risk into the equation. Therefore, you will never eliminate all the residual uncertainty. And you're giving away your advantage, opportunity costs, all of that. It's make a decision and move. And we can make a different decision tomorrow when we learn something else. I think that is probably my biggest insight from the last few years in terms of something that differentiates folks who are being successful and those who aren't.
2: Yeah, I love that. And I think you can see that in all types of personal journeys too. There's this sort of uh, deliberation that that we've maybe all been taught that collect as much data as you can and don't be rash and don't be impulsive. And there's a difference between impulsivity or the best decision I can make right now, and just go ahead and make one.
0: That's right. And you're right about being rash and being impulsive. And that's that to me speaks of not gathering sufficient data to make an informed decision where you're taking on informed risk. But that willingness to change your mind, there are very few irrevocable decisions right? We perceive them to be irrevocable, but two reasons they are. One is, hey, we spent a lot on it and we've chosen a certain course and strategically it's hard to get onto the different road and it'll be a big investment or a lot of change management. The second one is the deadly one and that's ego. I made a decision and now I got to say I was wrong and we get hung up on it and we continue down that wrong path. We've made the decision and said, we're going left And we keep going down it, but we get the data that says left is a bad idea. And that ego gets in the way of those leaders saying, I can't say I'm wrong. And one of the things that I've learned and that I share with a lot of the folks I work with is you weren't wrong. You made the best decision you could with the information you had at the time. Now you have new information that is telling you there is a better decision to make. So th- this whole notion of wrong, once you separate that out, it's easy to get past that ego piece and say, I'm going to make a different decision here.
2: Yeah, it makes me think that part of your guidance is likely that, hey, when we make decisions and we go, what measurement mechanisms can we install on on that right away? So that at least we can start to gather that data, almost the EKG monitor is on this thing. And if we're going to kill the patient, we want to know know right away.
0: Yeah. And the caution I always throw there is let's gather the data that would cause us to change the answer. Because again, the bias is let's measure everything that's happening with this entire decision. And that takes time, that takes energy and not all that data matters. It's understanding, okay, wait a minute, we're launching a new product. And when we go to market, the real determinant of long-term success of this is going to be user activation within 30 days. We know that if they activate within 30 days, they're gonna stay on the product and it'll be successful. You measure that one metric. That's the one that can change the answer. And then you can make those decisions and say, hey, if activation is less than 50%, we should shut this down. If it's 50 to 75%, we should tweak it. If it's 75% or more, Leave it alone and just keep pushing. And when you can make those uh, decisions at the launch point, then you're gathering less data, but you can move more quickly when that time comes.
2: I bet you get people that have set that threshold and are still, oh dear God, it's, it's 40%. And are we close enough? Mm-hmm. And like I, maybe I should have thought more carefully about setting my threshold. You can cheat. So much around that and not have the discipline to make the call to to cut off, which is probably the hardest yeah. call.
0: It is. And again, it goes to the ego point. I mentioned the e-learning platform. And when COVID hit, nobody knew what was going to happen. There, there was so much uncertainty there. And I told my team, I said, look, we're not going to shift to virtual. I think this thing will blow over reasonably quickly. I think if we have a video offering, it's going to compete with our classroom offering. It may cause some cannibalization. It may cause some pricing pressure for us because we're at a premium price point. So you know what? We're not going to do it. And that's what I told everybody, the whole team. We're not doing it. We're going to see how this passes and figure it out. Three days later, as I'm watching that curve start going pretty much vertical, I got everybody back on a call. I was like, all right, here's how we're launching the platform. They're like, wait, what? They're like, did I miss something? I'm like, no, we're doing this. We're launching the platform. Like, when did this happen? I'm like, this morning. And it's just that, okay, I have new information. I'm breaking the threshold. I'm not going to sit there and obsess about, okay, is it a 100,000 new cases a day or is it a 101,000? I don't care. It's a lot and it's moving faster than I thought. So let's make a new decision and move forward.
2: How do you deal with, and that's a great example there, because you can't, as a leader, get away with whipsawing and seeming as if you make ridiculous decisions and turn on a dime. And there's a there's a faith that that. The people, the organization place in that, and you read all the time, that's very negatively evaluated. Like right now, as we're recording, everybody's watching the potential train wreck or massive success of the Elon Twitter that where the guy makes a different decision every single day. And certainly the popular press is enjoying watching the absolute chaos, and it must be hard for leaders to watch that and just, am I that guy? Yeah.
0: And again, it's having that case laid out. You listen to our example of, hey, we're not going to do virtual. And then, yes, we are. It was there there was a really well-reasoned case behind why we weren't going to do it. Right. It's going to pressure pricing. It's going to change the business model. it's, It's all these reasons not to do it. There was a very well thought out case. But there was that trigger that said, what is the one piece of information that could get me to change this? What could get me to change it is the expected duration where we're not going to be in a classroom where we're not going to be in person. And the one determinant of that is how fast do COVID cases grow? That is the one metric I'm watching. And when I was first making the decision, it was 10,000 a day, 15,000, 10,000, 12,000, 30,000. Wait a minute, 50,000. Oh my God, 100,000. Okay, this just fundamentally change, and that was then going to impact the timeline which is the one thing that matters and says it's not going to be two months before we're back in the classroom it's going to be two years and if we wait two years we're going to be dead we're going to run out of money and that's a bad thing so it's understanding what is that one thing that can really change it it's got to be a meaningful thing if this goes back to measuring too many things if I had 15 or 20 different metrics that we were looking at that can cause me to whipsaw right? Which is, oh, there's one new variant. And oh, this one customer canceled the class. And then this one did this. It's those little data points that are insignificant.
2: And if you're making
0: changes on those little data points, that's what causes that whipsaw action.
2: And if you have this idea, it's almost like the more macro the impact, the better. If you're choosing the one decision metric, you want to have at least thought about the one that you know, can more broadly impact the behavior of others in, in that context. And I think it, it reminds me of, I would say in the entrepreneurial set, get away from the whiteboard and imagining your amazing go to market strategy from whence you never talk to a, a single potential customer. And I say this as a guy who has, has done this more times than I'd like to admit, because it's easy and wonderful to paint a vision and draw pictures of it with nice colors and spend six and a half days working on your logo instead of calling a customer. But, uh, you know, that happens. And then you go, which type of metric or data should I be thinking about? Not just which one, almost like what has the biggest, almost exponential impact on my decision?
0: Yeah, I think for me, it's... <clears throat> which metric or which observable fact is going to have the biggest impact on the result that I care about. By way of example, I had a friend at one point, I've been running my firm for several years at this point, and they were a salesperson and they asked, what's your time from initial prospect until deal close? What is that time frame?" I said, I have no idea. They're like, what do you mean you have no idea? I'm like, I have no idea. They're like, Don't you measure that? No. You have to measure that. Why? Why do I have to measure that? Because then you'll know how long from initial contact to prospect and prospect to proposal and all the way through. I'm like, okay, I would know that, but why do I have to measure that? Because then you know that. Different question. How is knowing that going to change my behavior? Will knowing any of those pieces of information change the way I sell, change the way I go to market? change the types of customers I go after. And by the way, I've been running this firm for, I don't know, eight or 10 years at that point. And I have a pretty good sense of the market and who the customers are. Knowing that information change anything to drive my result of making a sale. And they said, probably not. Then I don't care. I don't care. I don't need that information. And that's actually value destroying because the time spent gathering and analyzing that information is taking me away from Making a whole bunch of sales calls and calling on clients and prospects, which actually drives the results I care about. So it's really understanding what is that metric that is going to impact the desired outcome. And that's the one we need to be sensitive to.
2: Over that period of experience, it's making me think that in my own decade plus of working big deals and things like that, the discovery and experience of which things actually matter, and being aware of that. So in in my world, I just decided that there's two things I care about, and it's call to close ratio and average contract value, and I yeah. don't think about anything else. And I know that introduces what may be perceived as inefficiencies because I I watch the courses and I read some of the books. I stopped reading the books, but that it goes. This system that is the popularly available one does not square with my experience and the way that we're teaching people to do things doesn't square with the way I do them. So we can get to this later, but should I become a teacher or should I just just keep doing what I'm doing and keep my head down?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things where I think all decision making, you have to layer on personality and risk tolerance as well. And I don't bet, I, I don't gamble on sports or every once in a while go to the casino. I do have a slot machine here at the house, but that's more for entertainment than anything else. But there is one bet I will always make and that's on myself, right? So when I'm making these bets, I say, okay, is this something where I can fundamentally affect the outcome? If so, I'm willing to take some risk there because I have that track record. And it may not square with what other people say and what other people are doing. That's their bag, right? I literally just started a private record label, totally unrelated to my training stuff, because I saw this guy perform at this show. He was the opening act. And I go to a lot of concerts, and he just absolutely melted my brain. I like Just unbelievable talent. And I said, why is he not huge yet? And the person who was the manager for the headliner said, he needs backing. I said, what do you mean he needs backing? He needs financial backing. I'm like, so he needs money. And they said, yeah. I was like, I have some money. I don't know how much we're talking about, but I don't know what's involved. But I know I can impact this outcome because he probably knows the art, but he doesn't know the business necessarily. And I know business. So I'm willing to take that bet because he's already eliminated the uncertainty about the talent because I just watched him for 45 minutes and being able to make that bet. But that's my risk tolerance and knowing where I am. So it's all personal in that regard.
2: It's very much informed in that way we were talking about before. So like I know how to recognize the thing that I can impact and recognize the thing that I can't. And it's a good sort of team building analogy. Well, people will tell you that just know your blind spots and try to hire some really smart people and get out of their way. And I really do resonate with that myself. When I was creating my current work, I just look at him like, I really suck at 80% of this, like really suck. And I need people who can deal with the fact that I suck and I'm actually the prototypical guy in sales. I'm probably won't follow the process. I'll shortcut things. I just want to be on calls making deals, which means I need to build the infrastructure of humans and processes that I need to be forced to use. yeah, and I think there's so much of that in in business where you have to just own up to the parts that you know you're just gonna suck. you can get it logically, you can understand it but know your own behavioral (laughs) flaws.
0: Yeah. It's knowing what the strengths are, knowing where the gaps are, but also being aware enough of what somebody's doing to know, are they doing it well? Going back to the private record label, we're bringing on somebody who's doing the like Facebook advertising and Instagram advertising and YouTube advertising. I understand that stuff enough to be dangerous, but I don't understand it. And the way the systems work and keywording and everything else, but I need to understand it enough. So when she starts doing stuff and telling me what action she's going to take, I know if she's the right person or not. So I need to know what kind of outcomes I'm looking for to be able to be smart enough, but also be willing enough to say, Hey, here's your budget. Here's the money go and let me know. And let me get out of your way. And you tell me what you need from this point forward.
2: Are you an advocate of the sort of, sounds a little bit like T-shaped, know all the things enough to know what you don't know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: it's, I know what my spikes are and I know where I don't have spikes, but I, again, try to understand it broadly enough. You need to know just really fast, like one indicator, wait a minute, that is not a spike to that person. And I thought it was, therefore I got to fill that gap. And there's another person on the team where, they sent me some initial stuff and I, I just ran some quick numbers and I'm like, hey, this looks funny. And honestly, it was like basic math in Excel. And they wrote back, they're like, oh, wow, I didn't really see that. Wow, that's super insightful. I'm like, okay, this is not your spike and I need somebody in this space who has that. Now, this person has unbelievable spikes in other places, but it's being able to diagnose really quickly, do they have the capability I need for what I don't have? Right, and getting on that quickly, and not just letting maybe they
2: know it, maybe they don't know they don't know it. Let's act. And you talk about spikes. Is that a strengths disposition? You subscribe to that idea. Of you have there's known models, right? Your I don't know Strengths Finder from Gallup and things like that. Is is, is that borne out in your work that that type of model? And like said, all models are wrong. Some models are useful, but. That type of approach, does that seem to play out? In- for me, it has, both personally, professionally for my career,
0: but also my teams, knowing what somebody's great at, what they're not. And it's an understanding of, let's say there are 10 areas that somebody can demonstrate competence in. Um, there's the spikes, and it's going to be two or three things that somebody is like really unique and distinctive at. Then there's capable, like minimum table stakes to be on the team. And every all 10 need to be at capable, right? And if, you're, if any of those are not at capable, I got to get you trained up and help you build that skill to a level of acceptability. But once at that point, it's diminishing returns to try and build a spike that isn't there. And, and I'd much rather find that person who has the missing spike that I don't have. I may be acceptable in that space, but I'm never going to build that competency and have it become a spike. I'm much better off going and finding that spike in somebody else.
2: So I've always found that to be an effective approach. What all the things we're talking about, right? You could have read it in 2000 different books and attempted at any time to self-implement if you're any kind of leader, any kind of organization, and everybody rolls their eyes that I should hire consultants. But there's something like, why can people know things and be so aware and have read the hell out of it and distributed the book and done the lunch and learn and still need third-party perspectives.
0: I think there's a degree of accountability that comes with it. Having a third party come in and say, hey, Ledge, I'm looking at your sales process. And the one thing you're not doing is this. You're like, yeah, I know I should be. I've read that in four books and I know it's important. Okay. What are the barriers to you not doing it? And sometimes it's that, the, that questioning, that can peel it back. And Hey, actually the barrier is I don't like being told no, and it's an ego thing for me and it's uncomfortable. Okay. And once we can get to root cause, somebody from the outside can question that and help you find if there's a barrier or it's an accountability thing. Cause you know what, Ledge, you and I are going to talk again in two weeks and darn, I'm going to ask you, Hey, how's that thing going? And that's going to be the first question I ask. And the first meeting you're going to go, ah, yeah, I didn't get to it. All right. What's the plan? What are you going to do? Let's talk again in two weeks. Two weeks come, Ledge, how's that thing's going? You're like, and oh, I didn't do it. Okay, now the accountability starts. So that external push can be really helpful, I think, for a lot of folks. I think the other thing that helps is having somebody prioritize and, and contextualize this stuff. Because if you read 30 books, you're going to get 300 ideas, and you're just swimming in them. And you sometimes have a hard time stepping back and saying, of these 300, here are the four that actually matter, that are going to make a difference for me. And sometimes bringing somebody in with that subject matter expertise, they can look and say, okay, I know these 300. These 100 don't even bother. They're not relevant to your situation because I've seen people try and apply them and they don't work. So I may have context as an expert that you don't have, and I can take those off the table. Then of the remaining 200, these 100 will have impact. It won't be big. These 100 are where it's at, and these three or four are really playing to your strengths and can actually have disproportionate impact. So that that I think where that contextualizing can be really helpful for focusing and
2: driving the behavior. Yes, the curation I'm hearing there and the accountability of just because some consultant or helper or coach or whoever that is, has chosen to study into and master a particular area then allows that person to have spent 14 years in your case in that space, solely in that space, which means their pattern recognition abilities, their collections of experiences just vastly outstrip Anybody who has had to splinter their attention, which is going to be any leader or CEO or somebody who's in charge of a lot of things needs to be in that sense, T-shaped for their own organization, doesn't get the spike.
0: Yeah, exactly. Every once in a while. I'll get challenged in a classroom and walk into a new client, maybe in a new industry, and I'll walk in and do an introductions in the beginning of class. And you've got one person with their arms crossed and they're like, I don't want to be there. And what does this guy know? And he's an outsider. And you get the question of, well, what do you know about the oil and gas industry? I know when it says E on my car, I got to go get some. And they look at you like, what? Why are you here teaching? And I say, what do you know about decision-making models? Okay. I don't know anything about oil and gas. That's why you're in here. I know a lot about this subject matter that you don't. So let's understand what we're both bringing to the table. And the conversation is in the middle saying, how do these models apply in the oil and gas world? And how can we take them forward to actually have impact? And that's where the meaningful conversation.
2: You have the training disposition of, I'm just going to listen to you. Like I watched your course, I'm like, this guy's going to whoop my ass if I don't like do the thing. And you're just standing there like in your nice, like LinkedIn background. I'm like, I got to talk to him. And I think obviously like that accountability factor is huge where I just feel like, I don't want to let down that delivery. And a a coach can have that disposition or can have the helper guide disposition. But have you seen where you built a practice around your own then experiences and your own ways of learning how things get done?
1: Yeah,
0: I think what's interesting is being able to adapt that approach. So I am not everybody's cup of tea. There's six people who I am their cup of tea and like other people, like it it doesn't work where I'm, I can be seen as intimidating or imposing or aggressive, or even if I'm not, people will layer that on and say, he used to be a tank platoon leader. He knows how to kill me. And I do They're like telling this narrative and I'm like this big teddy bear and I, I like being pretty laid back and having a good time. So it's being aware of, okay, what are the perceptions that might be out there with me and how do I need to adapt and show up in this situation? So with you, if it was, if I was your leader or I was your executive coach or business partner or whatever, it'd be like, yo, and you're from Jersey and I'm from Jersey and it's, yo, ledge, what, why are we not getting this done? And I can lean forward and be a little bit more aggressive and that'll work with you. But if I'm dealing with somebody who is perhaps more introverted, more soft-spoken, maybe physically smaller than me, quieter, maybe comes from a totally different industry, I need to, this will not work, right? This will just shut everything down. And it needs to be, okay, hey, let's talk about what's going on. How are you? Creating that space. The physical affect of it. I physically made myself smaller, and less intimidating. I gave you space. And this applies not just to presence kind of stuff. It's understanding stylistically what works for you, but being willing to flex in a given situation to what works for the other person. And also, by the way, being willing to throw the flag and say, I'm not the right person for this situation. My my firm, we do a lot of executive coaching. And there are some people, first conversation, I'm like, we can coach you, but it ain't going to be me. Because... This dynamic will not work. I will not be as good of a coach for you as this other person on my team. It's being willing to make those shifts as much as you can in service of the other person.
2: So let's talk about how you got here. You had the experience of the Army experience and you had the the corporate experience. And then years ago, that's about the same time that I actually ran out and said, I quit my job and I'm going to go into consulting and entrepreneurship. And it was a substantially different environment and you've now also had the experience of running into several recessions and global pandemics and other fun things. One more probably coming. The once in a lifetime events continue to pile up. <laughs> and, but I'm interested to say, I always, I frame this one as take me to the kitchen table initial discussion where there, there was no company, there was no clients and you're going to say, I need to do a thing and it feels nuts.
0: Yeah, I was actually at Capital One, and the L and D person, learning and development person, came to me one day, and they said, "Hey, you should go to this course. We're bringing an external consultant." I'm like, "Great, what's the course?" And they said, well, "How do you go from an idea to a fact-based, data-driven, ten-page or less presentation that people care about?" I'm like, "That's McKinsey 101. Why don't you like get really consultant, and I'll just teach a version of that?" If you're telling me people internally need that, then I'm happy to teach something. And they're like, "Okay," so I. Wrote my own course and I figured I'd teach twice a year. I was teaching two and three times a month because there was just so much demand. People would come through and go, Oh my gosh, my team needs this. My team needs this. My team needs this. And I had to train up other trainers. It was, I was like, guys, I have a day job. Like I have to go run part of the operations here and I can't do this all the time. So when I left Capital One i said okay there's got to be a market for this if that many smart people are demanding this type of training there has to be a market for it so i started my firm at that point i started thought leaders so that was back in 04 years ago but i had kids had a mortgage and i'm like yeah this ain't gonna pay the bills initially and i gotta go do something so i took the job at scott's miracle grow and i was running thought leaders off the side of my desk so i take a day vacation Go teach, then go back to my day job and earn my salary. And I did that for about three years with the notion of when the training business gets big enough and stable enough and has predictable revenue, then I'll go do it full time. And it's, hey, clown, it's not going to be big enough and predictable enough until you go do it full time, chicken egg. And I remember one day I got home and I got my pay stub in the mail from Scott's and it was 30 days of work and it was X dollars. And at that point I'd been there for a few years and like five of the days were really good and 20, 25 were like, eh, for me at that point. On the same day, I got an invoice payment from one of my training clients and it was one day and it was a blast and I loved it. And it was X plus 50%. And I'm like, what am I doing? Now, this comes every month and it has a 401k and benefits and everything else. And, you know, the we all know the entrepreneurial stuff. You don't sell, you don't eat. But it was that moment where I was like, okay, I need to go make a run at this. And again, going back to decision making, I don't know how it'll play out. I could get out there and find out, wow, there's big demand and it'll blow up in good ways and be super successful. Or I get out there and go, yeah, you're not really good at selling. And there's not really as much of a market as you thought. And, oh, by the way, here comes the first recession in 2008 and it could blow up. But the thing is, that was not an irrevocable decision for me. Because if it blew up, I could just go back to corporate. It may not be back to Scott's. It could be to another company. It's not like I invalidated that entire career path. I could make a different decision the next day.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I always love to dig into, as look back to yourself there, I don't know if you're an Office fan. There's a episode of The Office where Jim is, messing with Dwight and he sends Dwight faxes from future Dwight and he's messing and the coffee is poisoned and all these things. But I thought about that and I said, okay, if I had, or if you had a one sheet of paper and a Sharpie and the magic fax machine to, you know, 10, 15 years ago, Mike, what would you scroll on the paper?
0: Don't play small ball. Don't play small ball. And it's by small ball, it's the little things that seem really important that just do not have disproportionate impact. And there have been a lot of times over the course of running this business where I played small ball. So for example, screwing around and like answering tons of comments on a blog post that I wrote and giving people a, a long treatise on why their comments wrong. And it's okay. And that's it. Or messing around with like a tiny client, or messing around with the formatting on a proposal, and it like in a microcosm, it's really important. but the opportunity cost of that brain power and that time that could have been spent thinking about, hey, where is the world heading fifteen years from now, and how is technology going to change the way we learn? Maybe I would have built my e-learning platform multiple years earlier and had bigger capabilities there. So it's always asking, you know, what is the opportunity cost that of whatever it is I'm doing? And I've finally gotten to a point where it's, okay, Trevor, you're running the blog now. And I pay him X dollars an hour, and I don't mess with it It, because that's gotten to the point of being small ball. And certain scripts for my e-learning courses, it's, Heather, you do that. I'm not playing with it anymore. And it's just constantly forcing yourself up to the bigger decisions that you need to be. And it's just so easy to get sucked into the small ball. And I'm doing it right now with this private record label. I'm like, I'm running the ticket giveaway for the concerts right now. There's nobody else to really do it. And somebody's got to do it. But eventually, how quickly can I get that stuff off my desk to be thinking about the bigger things that we should be doing? Like, How do we get this guy on the next massive tour as the opener?
2: And how do we fund doing that? Those are the big ball questions. And I imagine you'd then advise to leave the time and space and figure out how do I inventory small versus large ball. What's so easy to do is just keep doing things without... In a sense, like it's so easy to do those bad habits, but I don't know why, but it, at least for me, it's so hard to make the good habits stick of I will carve two hours on my calendar every Thursday morning and I will do deep strategic thinking. If that was a dentist appointment, I would be there and I would be on time. But if I promised myself that time, forget it. Like I never do it. And I think that's that a personal accountability where obviously there our coaches. Now I was as a D1 athlete. I think I got used to the fact that somebody was going to whoop my ass if I didn't show up and yeah. did not develop the maybe the muscle of how do I whoop my own ass?
0: Yeah. Self discipline. I go back to my West Point experience and I was an athlete in high school, not a great one, but enough that there was discipline there. And then West Point, you want to talk discipline that was a phenomenal crucible of. Holding yourself accountable to doing the things that need to get done. So I'm pretty good, and it comes pretty naturally that when I put it on the calendar or I put it on the task list, it gets executed. It's like ruthless execution. There's a very high bar to get on that list, but once it's on the list, it's getting done. Um, and I think you're spot on about carving out that time to do the thinking. And I actually coach a lot of folks when I'm doing executive coaching that they need to build in at least two hours of think time every other week. If they're reasonably senior, and I'm not talking 15 minutes here, 30 minutes there, I'm talking a two hour block away from your desk, phone off, email down where nobody can get to you, where you can just step back and say, where is this all going? What am I working on that needs to come off my plate? Who's going to take it over? What are we going to stop doing? And then what are the big things that I need to be working on? And it's really just taking it to its natural conclusion and saying, For this given activity, what is the potential long-term impact on the metric that actually matters to me of this activity? So answering a blog comment, let's take that to its natural conclusion. The biggest impact that could have would be one person being like, Oh my gosh, this guy is really smart. Hey, he does training. Maybe we should bring him in. We should become a client and go through his training. That's the furthest extension of that one. It's okay. I could land a new client. Then you assign a probability to that and it's 1%, right? So the natural outcome, the expected value of that activity is fairly low. But if I say, what about getting on the conference circuit for chief learning officer conferences? Okay, that's a lot bigger because now i got an audience of 300 potential customers who are in a role that can have a disproportionate impact. And if I straight line that out to, what is the biggest natural conclusion here? That's the big ball. And it's just extrapolating from this activity. What is it going to do for me? Running the ticket giveaway for this band. It's, okay, what's the best that's going to happen? This person will show up and they'll buy a $30 t-shirt and they're going to buy the CD for 15 bucks. And that's what $45 a margin. Okay. That's it. Or they may bring a friend. So it may be 90. It's like straight line it out. And you can see, is this activity
2: going to be worth
0: the, worth the time and effort, the opportunity cost
2: of it? And then. Having had the thoughtful process, the previous personal discussion of, I should save money to do this because the leverage is not av- available if I don't have revenue and or cash to buy off that time. So I know I'm flushing my own time down the toilet. I right. better damn well have planned to have enough cash in the bank to have better leverage because you can't do it otherwise.
0: Yeah. It Look, know your hourly rate. Right. And I assign a pretty high number to the value of an hour of my time. And if that hour, let's talk mowing the lawn, I don't mow the lawn anymore because I can't I would not pay somebody the hourly rate I aspire to to cut the grass, therefore outsource. Right. And when you have that mindset of what is my hourly rate of the value I need to generate, it makes it really easy to have these decisions, writing the blog posts. I pay Trevor, not nearly what my hourly rate is. And Trevor does great work and Trevor's happy with what I pay him, but uh, there's the arbitrage for me. And I'm now spending that time on playing big ball.
2: Yeah. And knowing too, I think, you know what I, I at times have taken the mow the lawn thing to the extreme and realizing like, in my case, I actually like breaking leaves because that's my thinking time. And there's that non-monetary value of that time as well, because I'm going to go freaking nuts if I can't go outside and move some rocks across the yard.
0: Absolutely. And you'll catch me putzing around in the yard with my little clippers and like trimming the trees. And, but that's, that for me is the cerebral time to just turn off the brain and do something mindless and be outside. But there's a different purpose there, right? I hate mowing the lawn, just pushing it back and forth. I don't want to do it. Therefore, my rate, their rate, okay, it's arbitrage. But if there's, no, I'm deliberately going out here to de-stress, decompress, think a little bit, enjoy being outside. That's a different purpose, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Before we run out, I always like to ask everybody, put your future hat on for B2B leaders. That's who's listening and It's pretty broad and we have all different sizes thinking, whatever. But what should be, from your perspective on that, radar that maybe isn't from the seat that you sit in. So I
0: think the biggest thing that I'm looking at in the future is, again, what is, for me, it's about really the exit, right? What does this look like when I get done? Because if you start a business without knowing what, how you're going to end it, that's a failure. And I failed early on. I didn't have a really clear picture of where am I taking this thing? The last 10 years, I've had a much clearer picture of here are the four or five possible exits and therefore here are the things I need to be doing now. So it's ready. When I say I'm out, where am I going to go with it? So I think for every leader, and that applies to your career, right? We all say, we're going to retire. And we say that and it's okay. What are you going to do? I don't know. I'm not going to work anymore. And your significant other is going to murder you because you're just like on their nerves. So you, you need to think about what is that next break point? What is that exit? And what do I need to be doing today To make sure when I make that decision, because I don't know if I'm going to exit this business two years from now, five years from now, 15 years from now. I don't know when, but what I do know is when I want to, I don't want to have to wait or I don't want to have to say, oh, my gosh, I got three more years of work before I can hit that point. I want it to be okay. I made the decision and I can start the process the next day that can apply to your career. It can apply to changing a role within your company. It can apply to if you're running your own company, how are you going to exit from there? If Thinking about it for if you work at a company and what's the owner going to do? Has the owner started thinking about that? And if you want to take that company over from them eventually, how are you positioning yourself? Are you stacking up the capital now so you could buy that owner out? What is that exit from whatever path you're on right now? And what do you need to be doing today to make sure when you, hit that button, you're
2: ready. Yeah. And I, I love that because I, I want everybody to pay attention to that because it's like, it's exit like on a highway. It's not exit in this way that we commandeered that word for must sell for hundred X multiple because we're a funded startup and all that crap. I think that's really important because the vast majority of opportunities are going to have that exit from a highway to a new highway or to yeah. your country house or whatever it is. It's not this idea of What's your exit plan is, what kind of multiple am I going to get on my non-existent revenue or user base or something like that? That's potentially one tiny amount of place that you could focus on if you have that kind of business. And most of us don't.
0: Yeah. And the other reason to be thinking about it is if you're not thinking about it, you miss it when it passes. You, You don't even recognize, wait a minute, there was an opportunity there and I just missed my exit. And I have since I've been thinking about it for the last 10 years, I have another colleague and she is in the process of trying to either sell her business or license it to this other firm. And I know I'm on the same trajectory as she is. And as soon as she told me that she came to me for guidance on how do I think about doing this deal, I immediately said, would they be interested in making the deal bigger? Because I would consider becoming part of, if they're building this global thing, I would consider being the foundation for this training and e-learning piece. But if I haven't been thinking about exit, I just give her
2: guidance and I'm like, oh, that's great. And then five years from now, you're like, oh my gosh, I missed. Yeah. I love that. Great insights. Mike, thank you for spending the time. I loved it. I know you have a lot of things that people can potentially touch base with you on. So I know I found you on LinkedIn, but what are the best channels? What are the things that you, you want to make sure that the audience are paying attention to? Yeah,
0: best way to get to me and all my work and my team's work is via our website, which is thoughtleadersllc.com. You can get to our e-learning there, our blog, our courses. You can contact us there. So that's the best place to go because it all funnels there. And I know somebody's like, "All right, I got to know who this like artist is with the private record label." So if you're interested, it's. Mark Daly official and it's D A L Y M A R K D A L Y official dot com. Great rocker from Cork, Ireland. And
2: he's going to be the next big thing. I just go listen to him. He's amazing. Spoken, spoken. I'm going to do it. I'm going to fire up Spotify right now. There you go. <laughs> Appreciate you, Mike. Thanks for coming out.
1: All right. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.